You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This, of course, is Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado. This is March 10th and Thursday, March 10th of 2022, episode 345 of this podcast. That was 1 Corinthians chapter 13, often referred to as the love chapter. The Apostle Paul outlining what love is and what love is not, what love does and does not do. And it should be noted, we are not perfect at loving. God loves perfectly, and he sanctifies his saints and helps them to grow in love and grace and truth, more like the Son. If we abide in him, we are free, and we are outfitted, if you will. We are facilitated, if you will. We are enabled to love better and more truly. Think about the first and greatest commandment. It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And Jesus says the second is like it, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you is a very simple litmus test for whether we are loving others well. Are we doing unto them as we would have them do unto us given their circumstances? I was listening to a Doug Wilson podcast here recently. I haven't been listening to as many podcasts, especially when I'm working just because podcasts are shorter and my hitches are long. 12 hours of sitting at the computer per day, 
seven days in a row, then seven days off. And I'm just not listening to much in the way of podcasts. I might listen to one here briefly and there briefly as I'm working on laundry, cleaning up, as I am doing something that's going to just be a quick 10, 15 minute task. I might turn on a 10 or 15 minute podcast to keep me company. But I was listening to Doug Wilson's here recently. And he was talking about, in the context of marriage, how when the husband loves his wife as he loves himself, that doesn't mean you go out and buy your wife a shotgun. The shotgun you've been eyeing, you don't go out and buy her that shotgun for Christmas just so you can borrow it. So also, when the wife loves her husband as she loves herself, that doesn't mean she goes out and buys a string of pearls that she's been eyeing so she can borrow it from her husband. No, you love one another in an understanding way, appreciating where one another is at and what is in the best interest of one another. That's what love is really about. You're pursuing the best interest of the other person. And I think that's right. I think that's good. But I want to talk in this episode about how love is not rude on the one hand and how love is not irritable or resentful on the other hand. Recently, I was talking with my compatriots at the Reformed Conservative, also fellow writing club in Gladii Veritas, the Sword of Truth members. And we came on the subject of etiquette and manners and what does it mean to have good manners or bad manners? And is what we think of as good manners a actual moral necessity? And it's an interesting topic. It's an interesting question. It's a complicated subject because do we have an idea of what good manners are? Well, I would argue that good manners have a lot to do with not making the other person needlessly uncomfortable. Sometimes you have to make other people uncomfortable in order to serve their higher good. For instance, sometimes you have to say something that might not be the happiest. Sometimes you have to ask an uncomfortable question because the answer needs to be known. You need to know the answer from that person or they need to think about what the answer to that question is. Sometimes there's just no getting around making somebody uncomfortable. But the litmus test is whether you are pursuing their well-being by asking the question. Whether you're pursuing restoration, for instance. Jesus says that if your brother sins against you, you go to him and you explain the matter privately. And if your brother listens to you, you've won over your brother. That might not be the case, though. He might not listen to you. He might say, I, no, absolutely not. You're being oversensitive. That's ridiculous. I didn't do anything wrong. In which case, Jesus says, if he's sinned against you, you go and get some witnesses and you come back and you have them try to moderate and mediate this conflict between you and your brother. And if your brother still won't listen with some witnesses, you take your brother before the church and you make the matter known. But you don't skip straight to the, 
having nothing more to do with your brother if he sins against you. You don't avoid having the conversation just because it might not be well received. You also don't just pretend, hey, there's no big deal here, right? If your brother is going to be harmed by embracing, as a matter of course, this bad behavior, this bad attitude, this bad way of relating to you and other people, that's going to hurt him, and you're not loving him well to allow that be, to allow that to become cemented. So good manners shouldn't be a cover for being non-confrontational when confrontation is needed to love the other person well. Good manners should not be used as a cover for, let's say, a wife telling her husband, you know what, I just, I really feel like you were being rude and unkind to me the other day. You don't use manners in a manipulative way to try and silence the truth because what does Paul write in 1 Corinthians 13? He says, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. So you don't use good manners, so-called, as a cover for not telling the truth. Good manners is not lying. It's not sugarcoating things. Now, it might be that good manners is going to be gentle in delivering the truth, but it also might mean that good manners is going to be being very direct, very honest, because otherwise there's going to be more misunderstanding if you are beating around the bush. We don't do this perfectly, but here is the standard. That's what I take away from 1 Corinthians 13. We don't do this perfectly. We need to get better at it. But you can't get better at something that you're not aiming for. And you can't aim for something that isn't clearly defined. So the big idea here is not to be eloquent first and foremost and to suppose that eloquence is love. He says in verse 1, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. It's just noise. That's not love. To just be making noise that means nothing. History is a tale told by an idiot. A man once wrote, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Such should not be our way of relating to one another full of sound and fury, signifying nothing, or full of sweet nothings that mean nothing, but they sound nice, and they make the other person feel good for a little while until you realize what they really think. We should not use what passes for love to flatter one another in a selfish way because we don't want to be uncomfortable ourselves shouldn't do that. Paul also writes, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. I am nothing. Well, that's remarkable. Here, I think of one of the big hazards in homeschooling. Having been homeschooled myself, I don't know a lot of people in this area who were themselves homeschooled. I just don't. I know a lot of families who are homeschooling their kids, but I think all of them were themselves 
public schoolers. I don't even know if any of them went to private school growing up. I think all of them went to public school and now they're homeschooling. And that's good. That's very good. But let me tell you, having been homeschooled myself all the way up, which I was shocked and appalled to find out that my own daughter didn't know last night. Like, wow, okay, so maybe this is a better kept secret than I intended. I didn't mean to keep it a secret, but maybe it bears mentioning. (laughs) Having been homeschooled and having a lot of extended family, a lot of cousins who were homeschooled, most of whom are now homeschooling their kids in turn, my kids are second-generation homeschoolers. My dad went to public school all the way up. My mom went to Christian schools all the way up. I look at <clears throat> a very real hazard in homeschooling where you might have kids who are very knowledgeable, who understand all mysteries and all knowledge. They have almost prophetic powers because they can predict what it is that's going to happen next based on their depth of knowledge. And that's a big goal for a lot of conservative homeschool families. I want my kids to get a good education. And by that, I mean I want them to be very knowledgeable so that they grow up and they win spelling bees and science fairs and scholarships. And everyone thinks that I did a very fine job raising them because I'm very smart. They're very smart because I'm very smart. Ooh, watch out. I know too many kids who were themselves homeschooled, who grew up and left the church and never looked back. And yes, they're smart, but there was a cold, lifeless quality to the education that they got. It was sterile, and I don't want that for my kids. I don't want a sterile, a sterilized education for my kids. I want what they're learning to be in the context of learning to love God well, learning to love their neighbor well. Learning to love God and their neighbor better by getting knowledge and understanding, but then using that knowledge and understanding to serve the good Lord and to serve those around them. That's what I want. That's the big idea. But Paul here says, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And I think what I observed growing up in homeschool communities in Montana and Southern Ohio, what I have observed is that was why Some of the kids I grew up with who were homeschooled left the faith. They left church. They became agnostics and atheists because they didn't have love. They had the knowledge. They had the understanding. They had the faith. But they didn't have love. And they felt like nothing. And in some sense, they were nothing if you take Paul's meaning here. He says in verse 3, if I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing, which is to say, 
You can sacrifice everything. You can sacrifice all of it for some other reason besides love. It is possible to give away all your possessions and even be martyred, persecuted, ostracized, excluded without love. Our first thought is when someone gives away all that they have, boy, they must really love the people that they gave everything away to. If they endure persecution, boy, they must really love God. Not necessarily. It does not necessarily follow. But they should be warned, and that's why Paul is writing this. They should be warned. Without love, there is no gain in that. It's a waste of time. It's very dramatic, but also fruitless. So that's not what you want. That's not good manners. Good manners has to be motivated by love. Good manners may sometimes mean you're sharing information. Good manners may mean you're opening a door for someone. You're pulling the chair out. You're allowing them to go ahead of you in a line. Good manners might mean you're paying compliments. You're giving your time and your energy and your attention to someone. But good manners and all those gestures without love are empty, meaningless, nothing. Just a lot of sound and a waste of time. Sometimes I think that good manners, so-called, get in the way of actually loving because they give a veneer of respectability to what really is indifference and self-serving. So that's not the kind of good manners that I want to embrace personally. That's not the kind of good manners that I want to teach my children. But what does Paul say? He says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. Now you might hear that and you might think, boy, that sounds an awful lot like good manners. Being impatient and unkind and envious and boastful. That's bad manners. No, it's unloving. It's not just bad manners. It's unloving. Love, he says in verse 4, is not arrogant or rude, verse 5. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. And here again, someone could say, well, again, like I, I think this is describing manners. Yes. But good manners are a subset of love for the Christian. Or else they're nothing. Good manners are included in love. But love is not limited to good manners. Because you can have good manners without love. And when you do, it's worthless. I think of this statement, that love is not arrogant or rude. Every time I think of the topic of manners, it used to be back in the day, I was so unimpressed with what passed for good manners. And I think part of this is because I grew up being homeschooled at a time when homeschooling was 
enough reason to ostracize a family. Just homeschooling. Everybody else sending their kids to public school approached moms and dads who made the decision to homeschool and asked, what, we're not good enough for you? What, you think you're better than us? Your kid's not going to get a good education. They're not going to be socialized. They're going to be backwards and weird. What, you think you're too good for us? What about your child being a missionary to other kids? You're sinning, even. I had one of my aunts was approached by some mothers in her church when they made the decision to homeschool. She was literally subject to uh, an intervention by the ladies in the church. We feel like you're sinning by pulling your kids out of the public school and homeschooling them. I grew up seeing very polite people outwardly exclude us because we were homeschooled and they were committed to the public education system. And I saw a polite veneer covering up a lot of ugliness, a lot of rudeness, a lot of arrogance, to be honest. Some of the joking air of superiority that I adopt from time to time, almost a homeschooling elitist uh, tone (laughs) from time to time. I think it's lost on a lot of people. It's absurd to me, though, because my childhood was marked by a lot of feeling outside of society by virtue of being homeschooled. And to some extent, that was the point. But part of why it had to become the point was because by opting out of public education, we provoked an arrogant and exclusive response from those who were still going to stick to it. And they had what appeared to be good manners, but it was fake. It wasn't real. Those weren't really good manners. You know, when somebody pretends to be nice to you and then turns around and is actually pleasant and warm with people who are in the in-group, it almost hurts worse than if they hadn't pretended to be pleasant to you. There's a proverb that comes to mind with regards to this. Proverbs 27. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Let another praise you, and not your own mouth. A stranger, and not your own lips. Always good advice. A stone is heavy, and sand is weighty, but a fool's provocation is heavier than both. (laughs) Wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Proverbs 27, verse 5. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. It is bad manners to pretend. Or at least I read this and I think it is better manners to be real. To let love be genuine without wax, as it says in the New Testament. 
Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Verse 6, Proverbs 27, 6. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. What love is and does is not fake. You don't lay it on thick pretending to be nice when you love someone. Actually, when you love someone, you might tell them very honestly, you know what, I don't think that's correct. What you did was not correct. What you're doing is not correct. Or you're not doing the correct thing. Or that's not true. Because again, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. What are good manners? Well, it's not very polite to insist on your own way. And lo and behold, there in 1 Corinthians 13.5, love does not insist on its own way. We know this, but in some sense, I think what we have done is we have taken the Christian tradition of the West, of Western civilization, and we put all of the parts of that Christian tradition into what we call good manners or what some of us call good manners and think of as good manners. We put the parts that we liked as far as an outward show into what we now refer to as good manners, but we've secularized love. We've secularized the kind of love that is other than romantic, brotherly love, philos. It's funny to me, I looked up, love is not rude. I did a quick DuckDuckGo search in preparation for this podcast episode because I was trying to look up, okay, what do people say? Does anybody say anything about love not being rude? Is that getting addressed? I see a whole lot of disappointment in the search results. The very bottom search result on the first page is from Christianity.com wiki. What is love? Understanding the Christian meaning. Okay. Cool. Everything else, though? Verywellmind.com Merriam-Webster GotQuestions.org Although GotQuestions.org I think is actually an apologetics website. So that one counts as well. Psychology Today. The Power of Love. What is love? Marriage.com Psychologytoday.com Lifescience.com Very often when you do a search engine query anymore, they'll find what the Wikipedia article is for the subject. You know, if you're searching a person, if I, let's say I'm searching Edmund Burke on Google or DuckDuckGo, very often that at the top of the page, offset on the right-hand side is the Wikipedia article with just a quick, like maybe 200-word summary of the Wikipedia article. And you can click through the you know links to other similar pages on other popular websites, Encyclopedia Britannica, for instance. 
I look up love is not rude. And it says, for one thing at the top of the page, not many results contain rude. Interesting. It's so interesting to me. But for another thing, the (laughs) Wikipedia entry it wants to link to is some 2015 film, some art film. Love is a 2015 erotic drama art film written and directed by Gaspar Noe. And it's like, okay, that's not, but that's not, <laughs> like if that's what comes up first when we look up the search terms, love is not rude, clearly we're not spending a lot of time on this in the modern era. We're not talking a lot about love being rude or being polite. If love is not rude, <clears throat> then the inverse of that statement must also be true. Love is polite. Love is well-mannered. If love is not arrogant, well, then it follows that love must be humble. If love does not insist on its own way, well, then that must mean that love maybe makes mention of what it would prefer, but also is ready to compromise when the other person also has a preference, maybe even a need hey, I need for us to do this in a certain way because I've got these particulars and is that okay? Oh, yeah, that's fine. We could do that. Love is not irritable or resentful. So here's the flip side, right? And I I brought this up with the Ingladia Veritas guys, Bobby McPherson and Joseph Crampton. And when it comes to good manners, there's two sides to the coin. For one, love is not rude which tells me that there is such a thing as rudeness, which tells me that there is such a thing as good manners, and that love will try to have good manners in the way that it interacts with those around it, with other people. Love will be polite and not just needlessly abrasive and upsetting. But also, in our day and age, with cancel culture and the internet outrage mob, and all of the craziness wherein somebody could have tweeted something that was just slightly offensive depending on how you take it 10 years ago. And if they're up for office and somebody doesn't like them being up as a candidate, being nominated or appointed or hired or promoted or whatever, they don't like what it is that they're trying to do right now, but you can't really ding them for what they're doing right now. You just don't like them. You just want them out of the way. You go digging through the internet archives and find something that they said, some offhand remark that they made 10 years ago, and start a campaign to destroy them, to destroy their lives. And it's not called good manners. Now we're calling it being on the right side of history and other dumb things. And Some of what is being called hate speech, it's not hate speech. It's just rude, right? It's just obnoxious. It was poorly said what was said. Yes, it's offensive, but it's not hate. It's not love, maybe, but it's not hate. It's just carelessness. And some, as I was explaining to my son Solomon the other day, 
some of what's being called hate speech is just speech that people hate. (laughs) That the progressive liberals, the leftists looking for advantage, love to hate. So what is considered good manners among such people? And should you try overly hard to follow what is considered to be good manners when you're dealing with bullies and manipulative people who are willing to change the dictionary definitions of words and concepts to get power over you, to control the debate. They change the language, change the meaning of things. They define the terms, which gives them the ability to retroactively condemn you. Oh, well, when you said such and such, that was actually a dog whistle, and that actually means such and such, and that was very insensitive. And I just think you should not be allowed to be in the position of having any power or authority whatsoever forever. Actually, can you just die? Ooh. Maybe, just maybe, you don't get to define good manners for me. How about that? Love is not irritable or resentful. Up above it says, love does not envy or boast. And usually what you find in my experience, what I find in my experience, what you find maybe in your experience as well, the people who brag over much are usually the ones most envious of what other people have. And they're trying to talk themselves and everyone else into believing that they're just as good as the person who has the thing that they wish they had, but they don't have. They're compensating. They're bragging because they're trying to level the playing field. They're trying to feel like they're just as good. They're trying to talk themselves into believing that, and they're trying to talk everybody else into believing that. And if it doesn't work, if the boasting doesn't work, well, then they're they're just going to resent whoever it is that has the thing that they don't have. They're just going to envy them. That does not lead to loving actions. It doesn't lead to either contributing support when support is needed. It does typically lead to the kinds of actions that Joseph's brothers took. Every time he comes to Colin, they think to themselves, man, I just wish he was dead. And then one day, let's kill him. And then they negotiate that down. Okay, maybe we won't kill him. Maybe we'll just sell him. We'll sell him into slavery. And then we don't have to deal with him anymore. But we won't have his blood on our hands. And also we'll have some money. How about that? That's a win-win. Love is not rude. So love has good manners. Love is not irritable or resentful. So I see this and I think it's not irritable. What that means to me is love is not overly sensitive. Love is not always looking for a reason to be offended. Love is not needlessly offensive on the one hand. Love is also not needlessly offended as a way of trying to get power over somebody that you envy somebody who has something that you don't have, whether that's the respect of other people, whether that's a material possession, whether that's 
a happy marriage or children or a good job or a nice house or whatever, whatsoever is being coveted wickedly, sinfully. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. So in other words, good manners is not affirming someone else's sexual perversion. Good manners is not celebrating that your gay friend just got engaged to their partner of 10 years. No, that's not good manners. Good manners is not celebrating that somebody just came out as a man trapped in a woman's body or a woman trapped in a man's body or asexual. That's not good manners. Love rejoices with the truth. Even when it might be considered bad manners, because first and foremost, we love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. The second command is like it, to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. You know, I've got a book here that we picked up, my wife and I picked up from Colorado Springs back in November, November 4th last year, we were on our way to celebrate our 15th anniversary, got away for the first time ever, 15 years of marriage, and we had never gotten away, just the two of us, for even a couple of days. We had kids right away, on principle, on purpose, and we just didn't have the money. Like, once we had the money to where we could have traveled and gone on trips, just the two of us, we couldn't because... We had children, and the more children you have, the less money you have too, so it's, what do you do? But we got away, and we visited this used bookstore on the outskirts of Colorado Springs, because we like books. We have a lot of books in our house. Enjoy reading, enjoy having good books, enjoy being able to tell the kids, go grab a book. Very helpful for homeschooling, very helpful for cultivating keen minds, understanding minds, discerning hearts. But I saw this one book on the shelf in the antique books section. The title of it is Ladies and Gentlemen's Complete Etiquette. The author is uh, Mrs. E.B. Duffy. And I don't quite know 100% when this was published. Not for absolute sure. It does have a date towards the preface, opposite the preface. It says, entered according to Act of Congress in the year 1877 by Henry B. Ashmead in the office of the Library of Congress at Washington. I'm sorry, in the office of the Librarian of Congress at Washington. So I reckon that this is at least as old as that. It's at least as old as 1877. Some really great illustrations here of ladies and gentlemen dressed up. There's kind of a montage. The street. So there's a man with a top hat lifting his top hat as he passes by a lady with her parasol and her dress, tipping his hat as they pass on the sidewalk. 
And there's a gentleman and a lady in the next scene riding horses in the countryside, dressed up very fine. Again, top hat for him, a lady's hat for her. And there's another scene with two gentlemen and two ladies sitting across from each other in a carriage being driven by a third man. All the men with top hats, one of the ladies with a parasol. They're riding in the country, or I'm sorry, driving. The caption underneath that illustration, that portion of this illustration is driving. There's also a scene with parties, etc. Courtship, weddings, traveling, correspondence. Also one that says toilet. Which is kind of funny. The preface reads, We have so long borrowed our manners, like our literature, from the old world, that we have become thoroughly imbued with the feeling that what is not European, what is not at least English, cannot be proper and right in the conduct of life. But now, in the hundredth year of our national existence, it is time we began to realize the fact that we are perfectly capable of depending upon ourselves in matters pertaining to both behavior and dress. Our civilization is American. Our progress is American. And all unaware of it as we are, our development of the finer and gentler traits of character is just as truly American. We should understand that the American gentleman, though he may be lacking in the exceedingly polished, almost subservient, outward forms of politeness of the Frenchman, though he may not be so self-asserting and condescending as the Englishman, is just as true a gentleman, and the type which he presents should be more acceptable to the American people. Underneath an occasional appearance of brusqueness is hidden an even greater respect for women, that touchstone of true gentility. Our national institutions themselves teach men to respect one another as those of no European nation do. There is an unwritten code of manners in our best American society, and there is no better code on the face of the earth. <laughs> of course. To afford those whom untoward circumstances have placed outside the pale of this true democratic nobility an opportunity of acquiring the culture and ease of deportment which is there found, this book has been written. That its basis is English cannot be denied, since our very civilization has an English foundation. But this has been Americanized to suit American customs, institutions, and ideas. It is not a book whose injunctions are to be regarded as the puppet automatically obeys the will of its constructor. Its precepts founded as they are upon a commendable self-forgetfulness and a respect for the rights and duties of others should be learned literally by heart that their manifestations may flow spontaneously from the individual. What follows is part one, adequate for general occasions. Yes, I said adequate. It was being funny. Part two, Washington etiquette and etiquette of foreign courts. Part three, etiquette of special ceremonials. Part four, dress. Part five, the letter writer. But I want you to notice with me the very tail end of this preface. 
Its precepts founded as they are upon a commendable self-forgetfulness and a respect for the rights and duties of others should be learned literally by heart, that their manifestations may flow spontaneously from the individual. In other words, what she's getting at here, good manners have to do with our responsibilities and our rights. Apart from an understanding of who we are and where we come from and where we're going, and why we're here, in the context of God having created us, ourselves and one another being created in God's image, we can't know what our rights or responsibilities are. And when our rights and our responsibilities are disputed, it's impossible to know what good manners entails and what it doesn't entail. So I think one of the things we're going to have to just accept is that first things first, we need to make sure the instruction is sound as to who we are, where we come from, why we're here, and where we're going. We have to make sure that that instruction is sound. And I think that's what we see with Jesus too. I think that's what you find when Jesus says things that are obviously considered rude by the religious establishment in his day. But see, that's where you have to be very, very careful. What passes for good manners sometimes is a cover for sin and wickedness and folly and self-service. You just read it with me from Mrs. E.B. Duffy. Self-forgetfulness should be part of the goal of good manners because love does not insist on its own way. And it's not arrogant. I'm going to leave it there. Those are just some thoughts, some reflections on the topic of manners. What do you think? Do you think good manners are a fixed thing that we can know and all agree on? Or is it possible for us to have something approaching good manners when you have about half the country believing that the foundation of our civilization is the key to knowing where we're at right now and where we're going. And you have about the other half believing that it all needs to be burned down and destroyed. Every convention, every social construct needs to be deconstructed. Can two such halves agree on what constitutes good manners? And also even within the one half that says, Yes, I believe that where we come from is the key to understanding where we're going. The conservative half of the country, if we can call it that. Even within that half, we run the risk of pharisaical approaches to good manners. Which run all of the risks of the first three verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Having no love only the form of love, only the appearance of love, only the sound of love, but actually meaning nothing. And in some sense, being the profuse kisses of an enemy. We shouldn't hide our love for one another in good manners, and we shouldn't hide our own self-serving with the appearance of good manners. Definitely bears more thought, but... I'm going to run. It's my first day off. 
I'm off for the next seven. My brain is tired from seven days of work. Reach out if you have some thoughts to share. But until then, or until next time, as always, thank you for listening. God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.